Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. This episode is sponsored by Skip Level. Now answer me this. Do you struggle with communicating with dev teams and understanding technical terminology and concepts? On episode 98 of this podcast, I hosted Irene Yu, founder of Skip Level, an on-demand training program that helps professionals and teams become more technical in just five weeks, all without learning how to code. You can learn the knowledge and skills you need to better communicate with devs and become more confident in your day-to-day role with the Skip Level program. You can go to skiplevel.co and use code OKIP75 to get $75 off the program by the 15th of June 2022. That's skiplevel.co, code OKIP75. Check the show notes for more details. On tonight's episode, we talk about compassion-driven innovation and how we can systematically avoid innovation failure. We talk about the four reasons for innovation failure, what these reasons are, and how we might avoid them via a four-step plan that ensures we have alignment and buy-in and avoid the horrors of discovery theatre, internal political sabotage, and wannabe superheroes that can all lead to failed products. We also ponder on whether we finally found a solution to both the innovator's dilemma and the hippo effect. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Nicole Reinecke. Nicole's an author and innovation leader with over 75 pending and approved patents, or patents if you're American. Aside from her innovation portfolio, Nicole has an artistic side and has appeared in at least one movie and has once a performer on Disney's Great Movie Ride, which was apparently a dark ride through tunnels punctuated by occasional flashes of imagination. Speaking of that, Nicole's trying to get us to step out of the darkness of failed innovation pipelines and bring compassion to our product development efforts to stop us going off the rails of the Great Innovation Ride. She's here tonight to discuss her book, Compassion-Driven Innovation, and how we might put people first to drive the best results in our product development and execute on our strategy. Hi, Nicole. How are you tonight? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me today. No problem. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I'm looking forward to finding out a bit more about that movie at some point as well, because <laughs> the guy that you said you starred with has been like in a thousand movies or something like that. So it's quite difficult to go back through it all. Yep. And it was before IMDb was online, so that makes it even harder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn it. So the book's been out since January, I believe. Yeah. It's got 100% five-star reviews on Amazon. But Amazon's not the boss of me or you. So in your own words, how's the reception been? It's been great. I think the most exciting part of it is the people who have actually started to adopt it and use it within their organizations. It's really easy to see how just a few changes in your current behavior can absolutely shift your relationships internally and then shift the adoption level of your innovation internally and externally. So it's a really easy read, and it's really easy to bring into vernacular and into your everyday life, which is great. No, that does sound great. And obviously, it's good to get that feedback. But on that feedback, has there been any specific feedback that you've got from people either in a review or maybe they've contacted you afterwards and given you some of those good news stories that you just touched on? Like, has there been anything that's specifically resonated with you or like a a story that really warmed the heart and made you feel like this was all worthwhile? Yeah, I think one of my favorites was there's a person who is in a very high level position at HP and they read the book and they said, you know, if I had read your first paragraph 20 years ago, you would have saved me a lot of heartache. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because they had continually gone out and tried to invent and innovate in areas that the business had no business in, right? So just being able to understand you have to have some situational awareness and recognize that you know you may be an amazing inventor, but it's unlikely to get adopted by the larger business 
if you go yeah. after these things. Like even just that simple perspective is really, it's really mindset shifting, which is a lot of fun. And it came about because I did a series of research over a period of years where I actually interviewed leaders from across the globe, people who are running innovation teams and who are running a really high stakes implementations. And I started trying to figure out, well, why do some of them fail and why are some of them succeeding? And I, I discovered there are really four common failures globally. And being able to understand those four common failures globally absolutely shifted my perspective on why some of the things we were doing worked incredibly well. And it was because they addressed those four things. So one of the things that kind of occurs to me from that, and it reminds me a little bit of another book, which you're probably aware of, The Innovator's Dilemma, yep. on the innovation topic, the idea that it's really hard for certain types of companies to innovate at all, given their market conditions and the uh, maturity of the company and the maturity of the practices in the company. And in many ways, that it's even it's not even bad management that stopped them innovating. It's actually really good management from the perspective of the company. It's just that events overtake them. So I guess off the back of that, the question is, uh, A, does this book help to solve the innovator's dilemma? And I guess actually, I'll pause there. Does that? Yeah. Is, is this the solution, do you think? It is one solution, right? If you look at the innovator's <laughs> dilemma, there's this big gap that they forget to recognize. There's what happens when you set strategy, which is sort of this thing that happens on the far left-hand side. So it's just like, hey, this is our strategy. We're going to go after it. And then everybody thinks you go directly from strategy into like design thinking and product creation. And what most organizations fail to realize and what the innovator's dilemma feels, also fails to recognize is that there is this space that happens between setting strategy and actually doing product design and innovation and implementation. And that space needs to be acknowledged and recognized. And that's the space where our book fits. It's that, well, there you go. that spot between the two. Yeah, it's the bridge between the old world and the new. But what's the target audience for the book? Is it mainly aimed at product managers, product designers, like the people that are setting the product level strategy and, and the execution that you just touched on? Or is it wider than that? Is it basically aimed at executive leaders and people that are founding companies? Like, what's the sweet spot? And really, who should pick this book up? Whoever owns the business, right? So in some organizations, the person who owns the business is a product leader, a product manager, or a chief product officer. In some organizations, if they're smaller, the person who owns the business is actually typically the business owner themselves. So we have examples of the person who's the business owner using this, and that's built into the book. We also have examples of product managers using this to actually run their teams effectively. I actually wrote the book with a woman who is a leader in a UX organization. And this is incredibly effective in how to figure out how to product management work effectively with UX. It's different than a design thinking book, right? Because that's not what we are. Yeah. So it was very effective in helping bridge that communication gap. And we also wrote it, the other person who wrote it is a marketing expert or a marketing communications expert. So there is an audience there for somebody who's in the communications industry to actually understand why are we doing things? How do we communicate with it? And how do we bridge that gap for unsupported moonshots? Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, the idea that you've got. I mean, obviously, I noticed that you had the three authors, you know, yourself and two others, but the idea that you've got various different disciplines contributing to a strategy book to basically, as you put it, cover all angles. So do you think that that really helps make a difference there? Like, would it have been the same book if you'd have cranked it out yourself and just used the experience that you had versus getting these extra collaborators in? Because collaborating with other authors doesn't necessarily sound like the necessarily easiest, most stress-free way to write a book, right? I'm sure that it's 
difficult to collaborate and coordinate and you maybe have disagreements as you go. But do you think that that was worth it, given the result that you got out of it? Yeah. And, and the reason is because if I had written the book on my own, it would have been a product management book. And yeah. it would have continued to fail to be adopted by the business. Right. I've done startups. I've done successful startups. And I've followed my process in startups, but it's never alone. It's always in collaboration with somebody who ran marketing and somebody who actually ran implementation or, or the UX part of it. And even though I never understood that was why these things were successful, I've also done it in cases where I've failed and I failed miserably. And it was always because I failed to have <laughs> that left hand, you know, marketing person, communications person, and I failed to have that UX implementation person. So it right. was actually it could only have ever happened with these three skill sets brought together. Um, otherwise, we'd end up in the same position that most companies are in where you have a lot of great innovation that's happening and not getting adopted, or you just have you know, continual point releases with no real innovation in them. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And a kind of a lesson to product people around the world as well. Like you often get tales from product managers out in the field that are struggling to get their voices heard or struggling to make an impact in their businesses, in their companies. And yeah, I guess we shouldn't forget the fact that we do need each other. Like we need the marketing team and the yeah. we need the sales team even and like all these other teams that there are out there. And if we don't all come together and work out a way to meet in the middle, then we're not going to get anywhere, as you say. But you didn't really talk to the disagreement part. Was there any major source of disagreement or were you all pretty aligned and just kind of harmoniously came into a book at the end of it there must have been at least one come on <laughs> no no actually so i handpicked the people who i wanted to write the book i had done a couple of years worth of research as i was saying earlier and came up with a lot of the statistics and a lot of the proof surrounding the process that we use and i'd actively worked on the process with um hannah yehuda who was one of the co-authors so she and i knew exactly what we needed to talk about and how we did things together and we had written or i had written a white paper a year prior and run into Deborah. And Deborah is by far the best single writer I've ever met in my entire life. Oh, there you um, go. And so we each very clearly understood and had our roles. And that made it yep. very easy for us to collaborate. Oh, sounds good. So I'm looking forward to book two then. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think both of them are going to roll their eyes when you hear they hear that. But <laughs> for sure, I enjoyed it. <laughs> Well, um, I'll try and get them on as well and see if they did too. But you're a busy person, right? And you, or you were when you were writing this, and I'm sure you remain now. Like you were working at Dell in the, their innovation team. Yep. I know that you've now moved on to Iron Mountain, but of course, writing a book, even with two co-authors, is a somewhat hefty endeavor. Like you've got to put the research in, as you said. You've got to actually get it written. You've got to go and get it published. All of that stuff. Why on earth would you decide to do that in mm. when you're in such a high-powered job in a big company doing all the stuff that you were doing? And did that kind of impact that? Or do you feel that was a very positive experience? Yeah, you know, I, I wrote the book I needed to read. And I needed right. to, I needed to write down exactly how we had managed to become so successful in such a short period of time. The 75 patents were not an accident. I had not written a <laughs> patent until I was in my 40s, which was pretty recently. And in a period of three years, I was able to write 125 patents, 75 of which were filed. Nice. And I, I needed to write down how that had happened because it just absolutely blew my mind that it had happened. It was a lifelong dream to write one. 
never mind that. <laughs> so I, I felt compelled to actually write down, here's exactly how I did it. Here's how we derived value. Here's how we derived meaningful value, value that was meaningful enough for an organization to invest tens of thousands of dollars to protect it and then to yeah. bring it to market. And so I felt, I felt an obligation to actually say, this is how we achieved it. You can too. And I wrote it in such a way that I believe everybody who wants to be an innovator and an inventor should be one. And this is exactly how you can go from A to Z. A to Z, then no Zs here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you talked about it a little bit earlier, and it's in the beginning of the book as well, where you list out some of the reasons that innovation attempts fail. Mm. And I'm sure we're going to get to a bit in a minute when we talk about how compassion-driven innovation is the way that we're going to fix that. But before we do that, what are those primary ways that the primary four ways that innovations fail? Yeah, and they fail because of exclusivity, right? You have one type of person who is assigned to do the innovation or one person who's trying to work alone. So that's the biggest reason for failure. The next one is you may invent, but you don't identify the most pressing challenges. So you actually miss the issues that are happening in the market. And that's called missing the, the most pressing challenges. The third reason is because you overestimate the value of what you're bringing to the table. So you've decided what you've invented is amazing or what you've innovated is amazing. <laughs> and it's actually just, there's a workaround. Nobody really needs this. That's a huge <laughs> fail. And then the fourth is really the most harrowing and, and devastating. And I've seen this spring down entire organizations is if there's an unsupported moonshot. So you're working on something. You think it's amazing. Your customers think it's amazing. You've got like this click that happens. And then you go to bring it to market and the rest of your company's like, nah, not into it. <laughs> and that, that is absolutely the worst thing. Like I've seen entire divisions get laid off because of these unsupported moonshots. That's really the worst. Yeah, so that's the worst and it does sound bad. And obviously, yeah, there's plenty of past experience that we could probably all draw on where this very ambitious, over-optimistic vision just doesn't work out. I mean, I've certainly worked on some myself in the past, which definitely sounded amazing. Like you just look at it and you go, this... How could anyone not want this? And then right, they, right. they don't. It's just very disappointing. And it's always, I mean, I guess in, in some ways, it's almost testament to the power of maybe using more sort of lean or agile approaches to try and work that out as soon as possible, rather than just throwing six, nine, 12 months of effort behind something and then finding out. But obviously, it's even better if you don't have the idea in the first place or don't support it. As you know, as you say, it's an unsupported moonshot. Let's support it before we decide to do anything with it. But do you think that it's more common to have any one of those particular types or based on your research, is it kind of just all over the place? Like there's kind of pockets of each of those things. And I guess also on the back of that, are there any or have there been any situations that you've seen where someone had like all four at the same time? Yeah, I've seen many all four at the same time. That happens a lot. (laughs) I just want to put that out there, especially in a larger organization. Like there are there are multiple pockets of all four happening at the same time, working on the same project, which is amazing. Mm. That's always fascinating to me. As you, so the most common really is the exclusivity where people try to invent in a bubble or they try to be innovative in a bubble. And a lot of that is this, this need to, to be important or to be seen as the inventor as to be seen as the innovator. Yeah. Right. And, and that is really sad. Because an idea has to start with one thing, but in order for an idea to become innovation, it has to actually start to gather momentum. And to gather momentum, you have to gather people and you have to be able to share 
ownership, right? You have to yeah. create that. And the reason we use the word compassion is because compassion is that internal drive to actually do good. Whereas, you know, empathy is, oh, I see your problem and I feel for your problem. Compassion is, oh, I, I feel this and I need, I feel compelled to move forward. And so in order to be successful, you must have a group of people who are compelled to move forward. And that group of people has to have enough influence that it can create an entire organization to move forward. And that's truly where I see so many people just fall flat in their face from the beginning. And that leads to burnout. It leads to people quitting jobs. It's terrible to see. And it actually creates this really negative energy internally as well, because people start protecting their little areas and getting defensive when anybody else wants to look at a project. That's really the most common. If somebody's lucky enough to get past that, then you know the unsupported moonshot's probably the next big issue where even if you figure out something great, you haven't been able to connect it to the business in a way that they feel ownership or that they feel compelled to move it forward. Yeah, again, I can definitely think of experiences in my life where some of those things have happened and it's not a pleasant memory. So maybe we should move on a little bit. But is the list then of those four things exclusive or have you done even more research since then and kind of come up with some more candidates that could come into version two of the book that you might be writing with these people? <laughs> Um, I think the next version of the book is going to be more about that, um, the creating the community, because that is a really big challenge that I see everywhere. So if, if you're in a small organization and you're part of starting that organization, right, that is an exceptional opportunity because everybody's coming in together. They have a common vision. You're moving things forward. As yep. you get into a larger organization, it becomes incredibly complicated to actually shift the paradigm. Because there is a lot of a lot of kingdom building that happens oh, yeah. and a lot of threat that happens when you try to introduce change. And you know, there's a lot of self-management that you have to do as an innovator and as a product leader to just keep standing back up. So I think there's an entire book around, you know, self self-management <laughs> to to figure out how do you continually stand back up when you are constantly being, you know. Yeah, hidden walls, I guess, is a good way of saying that. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah. All right. So I'm assuming then that the book, your book, is going to help us solve all that. So elevator pitch time. What's compassion-driven innovation? Yeah. So at its simplest, it is a way to create situational awareness, agility, value validation, and then to create phased visions in order to bridge the gap between strategy and development. There you go. Chips off the tongue. But the book calls out four stages. Yep. And obviously, we don't want to give away all the book secrets because we want people to go and buy it after this, hopefully, or at least consider buying it. But let's give people a taster so they might do that. So the first step is include. Yeah. So what does that step include? No pun intended. Yeah. So it's all about identifying the right people inside your organization that need to be part of the project. And how do you start to create buy-in from the very beginning? Decide on the innovation type that you want to work on, decide on the disciplines that you need, and then figure out what exists. So there's a lot of what is state-of-the-art in the market understanding, initial research on what's rational within your industry and within your vertical, and then crafting your theme based on that information. So once you've done that, you can actually start making a whole lot of assumptions that you think of as a product manager. So from that sort of state-of-the-art recommendation and understanding, 
As a product manager, I can now identify my proto personas. I can identify my prototype maps. So what are the relationships that happen between those personas? And then I actually start to create a list of assertions and assumptions. This is really important. So it is incredibly inexpensive to go out and validate your assumptions. It is wildly yeah. expensive to go out and validate an idea. <laughs> so start by writing down all of your assumptions, validate your assumptions, fix those first. And that has to be done in that first phase. So that's the include phase. Who do I know? What do I know? What's real and not real? And boom, phase one. Should be pretty quick and easy. Well, okay, you say quick and easy. I mean, some companies seem to be pretty allergic to the idea of doing any kind of research and just want to keep sprinting for wherever they think they're headed and God knows where that'll be. But how long are we talking then for an average include step? Like if you're going to put it in, you know, you know, finger in the air, number of weeks that you'd expect that to take? Yeah, I try my best to do everything in less than two weeks sprints. I think that two weeks is a long time. Oh, it certainly is. So two weeks, we've, we've done the include step. We've got the first outputs and we move on to the next phase, which is the discover phase. Now, product discovery is on everyone's lips these days in the product management community. It's a fairly on-trend topic and there's loads of great books. There's loads of great articles and videos and people out there basically advocating to do it. And it's no secret that product people want to go out there and discover stuff and ask questions of people and do experiments with people to make sure that what they're going to be building is what people want. Is that the type of discovery you're talking about? Or is it something a bit more higher up the funnel than that? Yeah, so that's part of it. But I actually believe in stepping left just a little bit and validating your understanding. So as we talked about, you're listing out your assumptions. So from there, we're, you would go out and do non-leading question development, scripting your interviews, and then conduct research, just validating your assumptions with the very clear goal of creating an effective journey map so you know what the customer's journey is from beginning to end, and then creating what's called a challenge map. So what area are you going after? What are their pain points? Do not start talking about solutions yet. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody I've talked to, they make this mistake and it makes me absolutely crazy. (laughs) Stop talking about solutions. What you want to do is you want to validate the challenges and then you analyze the data. So the output of this discover phase is effective journey map, effective challenge map, and a new set of assumptions that are based on reality and not just your opinion. And that's all you have to do for this second phase. All right. So that sounds pretty quick as well. It is. How long do you reckon? Is that a two-week process or do you let people have a little bit longer for that? Yeah. So the long pull in that is recruiting people to talk to. So if you have a great recruitment process, that could also be done in a week or two. If you have a longer recruitment process, then you give it some extra time. How many people would you normally expect to talk to? Is it the kind of the five people cliche or do you go a bit bigger than that? Or is five or so enough? I think between five and 10, you can usually get a pretty good idea. And one of the challenges with that is it depends on the scope of the project you're looking at. If you're looking at a project that has, you know, multiple verticals and multiple personas, you're probably going to want five within each. So scope your project right and you can get away with 10. Fair enough. So we're cooking with gas so far, but we're now moving on to the next phase, which is enlighten. Mm -hmm. So it's starting to sound like it's getting a bit deep now, a bit deep and meaningful. So what sort of activities are we undertaking at the enlightened stage? Yeah, so this phase, what you've really done is you've said, I understand the challenges I'm going after. I understand who I'm solving the problem for. And now you can actually start stealing from, you know, Pixar and from all of the (laughs) the movie animation studios. And you can say, 
well, if this were to be solved, what would the ideal experience look like? This starts to feel a lot like design thinking, right? Yeah. So if I think from the, the end point, like what do they really want in the ideal world? That's sort of your run map. And then you're going to take a step backwards and you're going to say, okay, my customers in my company, they are never going to understand what run means, right? It's too far out there. They're going to think it's science fiction and nobody's going to connect to it. This is where that compassion for the moonshot comes in. So now you have to say, what can I do to take one baby step towards that run? And then you're going to draw out a storyboard, just like they would in a movie, and say, if I took the first step, what are the challenges that we would solve? And then what would it look like? What would that experience look like for my customer? And you're going to draw that storyboard out. And then you're going to find something in between the two. So now you've got your crawl, walk, and run storyboards. Then you take that back out to customers. Now you can actually start talking about solutions. You say, hey, listen, if this was your experience, did we solve all your problems? Did we miss something else? What aren't we thinking about? And that's going to give you a great story to tell. And you can actually get some qualitative information to say, we really do need to support fixing these three things first. Here's what that fixing looks like. And then we can start to go in and say, well, what do we do? What technology do we bring together to actually make this experience true? And that's when you start to really do innovation, which is like the technology, the building, the proof of concept, the pilots, and creating that that experience and making that reality. That does sound indeed enlightening. But after that, we're at the activate stage. So the final step of the process, which sounds like we're getting to the business end, like we've done all of the good thinking about it. And now we're going to do something. Not that thinking about stuff isn't doing something, obviously, but what are we specifically activating and, and how are we activating it? Yeah, this is how do you build your internal relationships? How do you communicate the vision? How do you how do you go back and pivot where you missed things? Right? So a lot of times, this is where that unsupported moonshot comes in too. You may have failed to include a critical part of your business. And if you did, and you don't give them a chance to give feedback and to actually incorporate that in before you start building a product, they're going to sabotage you down the line. So you've got to recognize <laughs> that up front. So build internal relationship maps, communicate the vision, incorporate feedback, right? Conduct buy-in meetings. And then you have to figure out what do you need? How do you actually ask for funding? What does that mean within your organization? And then how can you get something to market to scale? So you have, to, you have to actually think through this formal aspect of getting something into the market. And a lot of innovators don't like thinking about this. Um, a lot of product managers don't like thinking about this. But the <laughs> reality is, if you don't do this part, you don't have a product in the market. And that's really sad. So, yeah. so that's what this is all about. It's like, how do, you, how do you understand who you need? What do you need to communicate to them? And how do you, how do you communicate to them? And then after that? We build it and we make a million or billion dollars or whatever it is we right. need to make to be successful these days. That's right. After that, you actually have a better chance of building something that somebody wants and people won't sabotage. So that's always a good thing. <laughs> yes, it is. But is that a linear process then? Or are there kind of loopbacks and side quests that you can go on as you work your way through the process and obviously start to uncover things and learn new things as you go? Yeah, it's very iterative, especially in that second and third phase. So state of the art doesn't change much, right? But as you learn what you have to solve, you may have to go back and start over and say, okay, well, we're actually solving a different challenge than we thought. What does that look like in the market? So it's very iterative in practice, you know, much like any agile process would be. This just gives a, 
a good way to think through what are the components that we need to think about in order to have a cohesive beginning to end strategy for innovation. And are there any watch outs or signs that stuff is kind of going awry Mm. as this is going on? Like any common pitfalls that maybe as you're working through this process, you might have to almost pull the emergency brake and and stop and abort and maybe think again? Or is it kind of designed to smooth some of that stuff out as you go? Like, when do you know that it's going wrong? Yeah. So you know it's going wrong when people stop talking. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the the technology is the easy part, right? So when you have customer conversations, it's really easy to tell when you've built something that's not resonating. Like that's not an issue. If you're lucky, they smile and nod and they're like, oh, maybe. But typically, you know when that part's gone off the rails. Where you have to be careful, where you have to watch for is including the wrong type of person on the team. So have you accidentally included somebody who's slightly toxic? or who's yeah. looking as a lone wolf, that's always very dangerous. And the people who are there to and they smile and nod and say, oh, okay, yep, I'm totally on board. And then you find out there was a second conversation after the meeting where they told everybody that what you're doing is terrible and never going to succeed. And then they sabotage you from that side. That's a big issue. And so part of the way we set up these conversations and the way we set up these projects is we have artifacts that come out from each stage And these artifacts are openly reviewed and a decision point is made and they're publicly posted so that you know why decisions were made and with what information. And that helps reduce the amount of negative impact that can occur when somebody does this sort of backdoor behavior. It doesn't eliminate it entirely. So you do have to have some people who are politically astute who can actually start to watch for it and make the right relationships so that if we're working on something nobody wants, we pivot and work on something different. So that's one of them. The other part that's really challenging is that you get people who are very attached to an idea. Oh, yes. That's even more dangerous because the whole point of innovation is pivoting, right? You get information, you make better decisions, you get information, you make better decisions. And if you can't get yourself to make better decisions, even in the presence of all of this additional information, then you're not an innovator. What you are is an implementer, and that's okay, (laughs) but change jobs. Yeah, I was talking to someone recently who was pretty much going along the lines of, if you're going to do all this discovery and then not change your behavior because of it, you might as well not do discovery. Like, Just own up to that fact and carry on, as you say, just implement whatever, be a project manager or delivery manager or whatever it is that you need to be. But there's no point playing like discovery theater for the sake of it, or just to say that you've done it if you've never made a decision based off the back of that. Yeah. Yeah, that one really gets me. Um, <laughs> the other <laughs> one that gets me is when you, you go out and you do all this discovery and you never bother looking internally. And it turns out there are three other products internally that do the exact same thing. Uh, that one, that also gets me. So yeah. I think they, there's a lot of importance in understanding what you have and why you have it. Yeah, no, I think and a, a lot of this boils down to alignment as well and just the continual drive that you need to have within any company to make sure that you're all pointing in the same direction and not just all going off in random places just because different people have different ideas. But a lot of what you've been talking about there does speak to the very political company. Do you think that's something that is common across all types of companies? I mean, I personally think that politics starts surprisingly early within a company like 
it's not just the preserve of large multinational corporations. It tends to worm its way into organizations pretty quickly. But is that just a thing that has to be surmounted? Or do you think that there are certain types of company, maybe certain types of industries or certain stages of company that have maybe managed to avoid that so far? So having founded a company, I can tell you that we didn't avoid it. Um, <laughs> and it was a, a company of, you know, a number under 20. And I think at that point, you sort of get the the, the hippo effect, right? Who's the highest paid person yeah. in the room. And their behavior will dramatically impact any innovation or any innovation processes or product management processes for that matter. So what they believe can bring into play the same amount of politics as, as a large organization. So is this book then the antidote to the hippo effect or is nothing strong enough to be a true antidote for that sort of thing? This book gives you enough artifacts and data points to help you counteract the hippo effect. That's what the goal is. Can you put together enough true information and back it with research to help make more informed decisions in a more public manner? Well, there you go. And is there, I mean, you say you've used this yourself before in some of your own innovation efforts, and I'm sure some of those are very secret, but are there any examples of times either that you've seen this yourself or stuff you've heard from other people where they've used this approach or you've used this approach and can kind of use that as a shining example of basically the efficacy of this approach. So one example we can talk about, if you look at the organizations that are in the book, you know, there are some really great shining examples of how this process can dramatically improve the lives of a company and of the customers. And GutterTex is a really interesting example. So GutterTex is a very small organization. It was maybe 10 people now, I think it's up to about 30 people. And they had to rethink how they were engaging with customers generally. And this was several years back. This was prior to the pandemic. Because the way that a lot of service organizations engage with the company, especially with housing services, is it was a very high touch. It's very personalized. You know, People show up at your door and you have to walk around and, and befriend yeah. them. And they were finding that that wasn't the ideal way to, to get enough business and enough enough of a backlog of business. And it wasn't comfortable for the installers and it wasn't necessarily comfortable for a lot of the customers who were in different situations. So they actually took the step back, mapped out what the customer experience should be, mapped out where the challenges were and completely shifted their way of doing business prior to the pandemic happening. And so we really thought through like, what are the situations that we can avoid as part of the sales process that other people just take for granted as having to be part of it. And so they had touchless estimates and touchless installations happening even before the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, they were well poised and well positioned to actually continue growing where many other organizations just completely stopped. So that's a really great example of how a small organization can use this to just rethink what is that experience and what challenges do I solve? Because otherwise they could have just thrown technology at their business, and they never would have actually solved the friction points, which was that sort of very beginning phase of the interaction and that closing phase of the interaction. But instead, they actually solved the real problems, which was great. Well, there you go. I'll buy two copies. But where can people find you after this if they want to find out more about the book, more about compassion-driven innovation, or maybe even try and worm out of you which of those films you were in when you were growing up? Yeah, so I am active on Twitter. I'm at Nicole Renicky on Twitter, and I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So feel free to grab me on either of those places. 
Right, well, I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes and hopefully some interested people will come and find you and learn a little bit more. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really great to hear some of your thoughts and some things that people can try in their own product development efforts and hopefully they can start to bring a bit more compassion into their innovation. Uh, Hopefully we can stay in touch, but yeah, that's for now. Thanks for taking the time. I'd love it. Thank you very much, Jason. This is great. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.